There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. War, celebrity, tragic death, secret London streets, and a family dynasty of map makers. Yes, this week's episode really does have everything. We're off to Long Acre in the West End to find out what's behind the name of the map company Stanford's. Oh, and you'll spot it. It's about six or seven minutes in. I mentioned Charing Cross in the context of a rail crash. I, of course, meant uh, Clapham Junction. Anyway, maps at the ready. Pith helmets on. Let's go and explore this particular facet of London. Hey baby, let me take you down to a place of strange sights and sound. You ain't never seen the light before. Just a stone throw from your front door. Explore, discover, inspire are the words on the wall next to me here at Stamford's. We're on Long Acre, which is just between Leicester Square and Covent Garden. And the name Stamford's might be familiar to you, or you might have yet to discover what Stamford's is. With me to tell us exactly that is David Mantero. He's the senior buyer at Stamford's. Hi, David. Hello, how are you? Yeah, very good. For those who are uninitiated, what does Stamford's do? Well, Stanford is the largest map and travel bookshop in possibly the world. Perhaps not in size, uh, but certainly in the uh, range of stock and the, the weights of items we carry on. And uh, yeah, well, we help travelers and we sell maps and guidebooks and other accessories. We're big fans of a map on this show, and I'm hoping that we can explore different ways of conceptualising space, and uh, perhaps particularly London as we head along. But one of the things that Stamford's is renowned for is having an interesting history. It's one of those stores that goes way back like a, a Harrods, so we're going to be digging into that too. I wonder if we should start by sketching out what's here and what's going on, how many floors, what's on sale, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, yes, uh, so we have um, three floors. And uh, basically, we divide it slightly in a um, geographical way, very loosely. <laughs> uh, so when you come in, you find first London and local interest and um, books in the UK and full selection of um, order and survey maps. And then we have other things like children's and accessories, as I said, and some stationery. Um, then if you go upstairs which is where we are now. <laughs> um, we have a um, historical map section, but also we have what we call the European section, which is um, maps and books on France, Italy, Spain. Well, you know what Europe is. <laughs> and then also, quite important, um, here upstairs on the first floor, we have what we call the digital section, where we can print maps on demand, uh, because basically we are agents of the Ordnance Survey, and we have access to the database. Uh, in fact, we are the oldest agents of um, order and survey in the country. We have been since 1863. Anyway, <laughs> so here upstairs you can get maps printed of um, any location in the UK with your house in the middle, any scale. Um, it's things that people use for planning applications, but also for decoration, um, gifts, um, anything. Well, there's, there's, uh, in fact, as we speak, there's a map of the world being churned out there. <laughs> yeah, in one of those enormous plotters, yes. Um, it is quite exciting, actually, uh, to see the maps coming out. And, uh, uh, no, ordnance Survey, my loose understanding of that, well, it, it's got something to do historically with figuring out where to put artillery and weapons and so forth. It sort of evolved from that, I think. Uh, yes, yes, uh, basically. And in fact, um, um, in the UK, the, the 
um, the name is still reflects that. Um, but in other countries, um, is still the army the only people that are allowed to to map those countries? That's particularly so with um, Turkey, Greece, um, even in Spain. Is still, even though there's now a, a civilian survey, the um, the army is still very much involved in in actually taking the measurements and and doing the um, the actual groundwork. Um, that's, that's quite remarkable, isn't it? Well, I suppose um, in some cases it was um, it first started as a, as a question of security because obviously you know the lay of the land is is a, is a very important strategical <laughs> um, advantage that a country could have in, in terms of you know, if it, there was conflict. Um, but um, I think with time, what's happened is uh, the resources necessary to map a whole country and keep it updated and constantly uh, surveying. Um, that's really expensive, and um, and the army, as it happens, um, thankfully, is not been very busy in the last few years in, uh, well, in they, Europe. They would love to hear you say that. <laughs> uh, so they've had, um, you know, um, it's, it's a use to give to them, and uh, you know, it, which is, I suppose, good for the country and and um, and everybody. Well, that, that Better than fighting, I guess. <laughs> Better than fighting. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, it does surprise me because, well, I mean, I was, I was going to, to leave this until perhaps later on in the conversation, but it seems to me that technology is moving ahead of pace and there must be, whilst I can understand it's a difficult, detailed job, it must be uh, that there are other companies out there with you know, satellite technology or whatever who are able to map things increasingly easily. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's just only when it comes to, to the closer detail, when even at, at the level of, uh, of you know, civil engineering, of, of uh, new buildings, small buildings, even vegetation, things like that, uh, it's, it, sometimes you need a double to double check and actually see exactly what's there. I mean, the satellite can give you quite a lot. And in fact, that's most of the mapping nowadays for, for people, but they still need to do some surveying of... Um, as you say, it's really changed a lot in, in recent years. But some countries are really, really behind at the same time. So lots of things are still almost made by hand. Um, we, not quite, but... Yeah. <laughs> we will certainly be coming back to that, I think, because there's a big conversation there. One of the things that struck me, and of course we've been in contact as we've been setting up the interview and so forth, there are some organisations where you can tell that they're extremely used to having people with microphones wandering in and out all the time. I get the impression that it's not quite so much the case here and I wonder whether that's an accurate perception and whether that's a, a choice on the part of the company. Well, there's, there's been in the past some filming crews and, and we get... It's just perhaps um, as a bookseller um, we are, and uh, my colleagues and me, we are quite shy and uh, introverted and uh, it's not our strength perhaps uh, public speaking <laughs> uh, but no I mean uh, talking about um, film crews um, famously um, um, Around the World in 80 Days with Michael Palin started here at Stanford um, so the beginning the opening of that of that series um, was Michael Palin choosing maps for his journey um, here and we very often as I said uh, there's film crews filming just pieces of the news in front of a particular map um, uh, but yes, as I say, it's not normally us that appear in the, in the, in the films. It's people prefer to see Michael Palin, I guess. <laughs> if I remember rightly, I think I remember that uh, Michael Palin's journey was due to end with them coming back from, I, th- I want to say, Southampton on a train that ended up being involved in the Charing Cross rail disaster. And, and it was uh, by some small uh, piece of luck that they decided not to be on that train. I don't know if my memory is uh, working properly there or not. Um, that's interesting that you identify as, uh, as booksellers, and clearly a portion of what you sell is books, but a lot of what we're surrounded by at the moment are those kind of foldable maps that fathers have spread over their dashboard on uh, family holidays. Yes, no, I, I suppose bookselling is a, it, it's a name. And in fact, uh, this is a really good point. Um, it happens really often to me that um, outside work, I, I describe myself as a bookseller. Or I say, when people ask, what do you do? I, I say, oh, I work in a bookshop in Covent Garden. And um, people will put, put a face and say, which one? And I say, Stanford's. They don't always understand the name or recognize the name. Um, but if I say the map shop, they always say, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> so so you, you really touch a point. And in fact, yes, I mean, we are all passionate about maps, and that's what drove most of us here. And in fact, guidebooks were a fairly recent thing. Fairly recent, I say, because of, of the history of the company being 160 years. But I'm probably talking about 1930s. <laughs> oh, right, as recently as that. <laughs> what, what is it about maps? Because it does seem to me that uh, maps do 
ignite a passion in certain people and uh, I mean I enjoy a map as much as the next man but uh, and it is men particularly I think I don't know if that's a fair understanding of it certainly we've had mapping exhibitions as part of Londonist we often speak to UCL and their department that deals with representations of space what is it about maps that you're into? Okay, good question. I suppose apart from being a representation of, of space and things, there's much uh, they say a lot about the people that made them and and the society that created them. And um, I just find it really interesting looking at a map to, and trying to understand the person or the society that was that you know that map came from and, and all the ideas and and, and personalities that are behind all these maps. And in fact, you can see lots of maps that. Are, less concerned with the accuracy of, of the representation that he made but it's more about sims and uh, I'm also really interested on, on those kind of maps which are not necessarily about geography or not about physical geography but much more about maybe a social geography or a, you know a, even a personal level there's, there's some about I saw recently a map somebody made about which shows the distances in walking minutes from somebody's house to all the things that he does. And I thought it was fascinating. <laughs> That's a great idea. I remember there was, I saw a map of the world, uh, the title of it was something like Map of the World as Seen by English People. And you've got England as this enormous country in the middle of the globe, and then right next to it, to the USA, and then a very long way away, France, uh, <laughs> tiny and distant. Um, <laughs> But maybe we need to develop that idea a little bit more, though, because what we started out by saying was uh, we, we were talking about ordnance survey and military mapping, and that seems very different from what you've just described with personalities being infused into it. So how does that work? How does that mismatch get explained? Well, the funny thing is that uh, personalities have always been involved in mapping and maps. Uh, and in fact, recently somebody showed me a, a map of the uh, one of the ordnance survey maps where um, the the person that drew it actually wrote his name. It's, um, it's a slightly hidden. It's, um, it's, um, it's written where basically what he's used is um, the symbols that you use to put rocks on the, uh, on the coastline. He's actually turned them into his name. And uh, you have to look at it upside down. But, I mean, all these things happen in the most serious maps. And in fact, the army and, and people like that use things like this to um, to take care of their copyright um, there is the streets that don't exist in most A to Zs and, and street maps in the in the world and it's basically a way that map makers have to control to see who is using their mapping without um, paying the price as of us that's incredible um, Yes, no, it's, uh, it's when I was first told, it, it's fascinating, actually. Do we know of any roads in London that don't exist? Well, things it changes, but yes, uh, actually, what you have to do is come here to Stanford and, and maybe ask one of my colleagues <laughs> and spend some time on the, the... We have a big, big map of, the, of London in the floor downstairs, which is worth visiting, and, and perhaps if you ask one of our colleagues, we can find one of the uh, small cul-de-sacs that actually are not there. <laughs> Wow, okay. And what about you? You've been here something like 10 years. Yes, it, it was 10 years last September, I think. Yes, no, um, I originally from Spain, probably can't tell, <laughs> from Malaga. And um, yes, I arrived to London about 13 years ago. And um, at, at some point, uh, I had a friend that was working here and uh, and I was really interested and, and passionate about maps and um, started in the post room. <laughs> and um, um, yes, so... Ten years after, yeah. Now you're the senior buyer. <laughs> well, yes. What does what that involve then? What's your day-to-day? Well, basically, it's um, sort of controlling the stock and um, making sure that we have what we need to have and choosing books and, and I suppose, curating the selection of, um, of items that we have, but also making sure that we don't run short of, of important things that you know, our customers need. Yes, one of the things that struck me, and it should have been obvious, I don't know why it wasn't, is, is that this is a seasonal game. Um, really, really, really much so. And, um, and in fact, um, um, it happens generally to retailers that for them, December and November, sort of the Christmas period, represents a huge proportion of what they do, um, which is not quite so much for us, because we do have the element of... Um, June, June, July and August um, really high peak on, um, on maps and, and travel books and uh, as you can imagine I mean, it's holiday time so, so, so this is you, the bulk of that business then is people who are going away and they grab a map as they go rather than kind of planning and we're well ahead or something 
Well, no, the thing is, I suppose there's two elements to it. Um, what happens in summer is that the, the traveler that we get is more um, short haul, as we call it. Um, so people are going to France or Spain, or, which perhaps doesn't need that much preparation because they are familiar with the place or they've been before. They even might have a house there or, and they just come to pick bits and pieces just maybe a, a week or two weeks before they go. And then... In November and October, you see the uh, long-haul traveller, which actually starts before, it starts in, in September probably. Um, people are starting to look at maybe when they're going to go in December to India or, or Thailand or, or anywhere, really. <laughs> so, yes, uh, it is really much seasonal, and, uh, but there's two, even within that seasonality, there's uh, different elements. So we have peaks both in, in winter and in summer. But they're completely different travellers and oh. have different needs. Kind of. So the profile of your customers is evolving over the year? Yes. Oh. <laughs> yes. Or potentially they're the same people, in fact. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Seems to be, oh, I could be completely wrong, but the kind of place that inspires loyalty among its customers. Do you, do you have a lot of people who are in here all the time? Yes, yes, very much so. Some of them even famous. <laughs> uh, oh, well, you've given me the perfect lead-in because I was looking through your list of renowned traveller customers. I'll let you do the bragging. <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't want to uh, either expose people or anything like that. Well, most of them are dead, the ones I was looking at, in fairness. <laughs> yes, of course, yeah. Well, I mean, um, in that sense, um, Stanford has really close relationship with people like Scott or, um, you know, Captain Scott. And um, there's, there's even um, correspondence between him and the founder of the company, as well as Stanford, um, talking about maps of the expedition and, and how, in fact, Scott took exception because um, Shackleton's name was also mentioned in the same map and he didn't think it had to be. And <laughs> it's actually quite funny, in a way. But there's, there's been other people, Florence Nightingale, um, and again, there's correspondence and there's... Uh, who else? I saw Amy Johnson on the list. Yes. Anyway, and, and closer to the day, closer to now, we've seen um, Bill Clinton here. We've seen um, <laughs> Brad Pitt. We've seen we see Michael Penning very often. He works very near here, <laughs> and um, Nicholas Crane and Paul Theroux. Basically, if anybody's interested, just you know, remotely interested in travel, they, they tend to pass through here. There's one uh, contentious name on the list, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Mm. <laughs> Surely we have a problem with that claim. <laughs> yes, um, and in fact, he himself didn't make it here, <laughs> even in, um, in figurative terms. Um, now, well, now, why is he on your website as being a customer? Yes, uh, well, basically, in the, um, the Hound of the Baskervilles, uh, there's a section where Sherlock Holmes sends um, one of his kids, um, street kids, to buy some maps from Stanford's for him to go to the, um, to the malls and, you know, huh. sort of a high, very detailed map of, um, of, of the malls. And, uh, so, yes, uh, that, that's basically where the claim from, comes from. Uh, so, so, yes, Stanford is mentioned in the Hound uh, of the Baskervilles and, I guess, in the manner of speaking, um, Sherlock Holmes shop here, yes. <laughs> that's pretty impressive credentials. It is, it is. Um, uh, it's, I'm pretty sure the name of Stanford is appearing in other books, um, other fiction. Recently, I can think of um, Her Fearful Symmetry by um, the writer that wrote um, The Time Traveller's Wife, Nifnega. Audrey? Audrey Nifnega, yeah. yeah. And um, she's, she's a big fan of the, of the shop, and uh, she saw the shop appears in, um, is mentioned in, the, in her second book, which actually is based in London. Uh, yeah. I want to know what Florence Nightingale wanted a map of. Do we know? Uh, we'll have to find out. Um, <laughs> no, no, actually, I don't. Mm. I don't know now. That takes us back a long way. I mean, that, that must be getting on to the earliest days of the, the store, right? How, how did the store get established? Yeah, well, basically, um, Idola started in 1853, basically about 161 years ago. To start with, it actually, um, there was somebody else called Saunders who had a station as a map shop in um, what's now really Trafalgar Square, but at the time was still part of the Strand. And then the then young Edward Stanford um, sort of joined the company with him, just working as a, a cartographer. And, um, um, and then soon transpired that Saunders wanted to sell and, and move on and then Stanford's establishing those premises. As I said, that's 1853. And then quite quickly, actually, um, Stanford's um, established himself as a name for 
um, maps and map making and uh, and in fact he started what I just mentioned earlier this partnership with um, Order and Survey where Stanford was actually the um, the sole agent of Order and Survey so if anybody even other shops wanted to buy Order and Survey maps they had to buy them through Stanford's it's dangerously close to being a monopoly isn't it Yes, um, I think the problem was more that at the time the Ordnance Survey wasn't interested in getting involved with trade. So they didn't want to have a, a commercial arm, so to speak. So they made the maps and that was as much as they wanted to get involved in it. They, they needed somebody to distribute the maps for them and, and take them around. It, is, uh, it, it did create a lot of overtime, not at the beginning, but over time other people started to say that it was, yeah, I mean, complain that it was a monopoly and, and uh, it was against free trade, etc. But as I say, it started more because of a necessity. That brings up a couple of ideas for me. One of them is that 53 that must be round about the time of the railways appearing must it was that sort of influencing uh, the the growth in in maps yes yes in fact um, um, i also for, i forgot to say that i was going to say um and that's why um stanford actually the business that stanford started became so successful so quickly um it's, it's because of the basically how the victorian society was and 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 all the advances that were happening but yes it's basically having the railways meant the the traveling and the people the kind of trips that before maybe somebody had to organize with uh, coaches and and months ahead and that kind of thing suddenly was available for everybody and quite um, affordably and and it meant that you could cover more terrain in less time but also the idea that the world was closer to hand um, just arose curiosity in people and, uh, and there were more narratives of places and, and, and voyages and people having been to places. And uh, so I think, in general, the society suddenly was interested in maps and, and, and books about travelling and, and faraway places and that kind of thing. Oh, right, yes, because the Victorian explorer is a character that we all recognise. And, of course, Stanford was establishing his business next to the, one of the big rail hubs at Charing Cross. Of course, yes. In fact, uh, I think at the time, Trafalgar Square and Charing Cross was a hub in general for um, not just travelling, but I think politics and, and basically all the societies, the royal societies near there. The, um, um, it was basically a great place to be at the time. The other question, of course, is if that was the period when Ordnance Survey started licensing Stanford's, what was the general public using by way of uh, finding their way around before then? Well, what happens, um, Stanford's wasn't really the only um, map maker at the time, nor, nor was the um, Ordnance Survey. Uh, there were other people, like names that we still recognise, like Phillips or Bartholomew. Phillips was a um, map maker based in Liverpool, I believe. And uh, Bartholomew was in Edinburgh, but they all made different maps of different parts of the country and uh, cities and places like that. And even before that, there were other map makers. Were they stitching them together? I mean, presumably, if people couldn't get around as easily or, or get as far, then there wouldn't be as much need. But was anybody stitching them into maps of the entire country or anything like that at that point? Actually, to be honest, I, 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 I wouldn't know. <laughs> oh, it'd, be, it'd be interesting to get to, uh, to say. I can't imagine there'd be a requirement because nobody's going to be driving up to Scotland or something, are they? Yes, no, I mean, it would be more like, a, I suppose, for general interest. And uh, um, John Ruskin, um, John Ruskin writing to Stanford says, Gentlemen, have you any school atlas or any other sort of atlas on sale at present without railroads in its maps? Of all the entirely other stupidities of modern education, railroads in maps are the infinitely oddest to my mind. <laughs> Ever your faithful servant and victim, John Ruskin. <laughs> what was his beef? <laughs> uh, well, basically, uh, I suppose it's, um, he was... Um, by that time, he had retired to the countryside and, and he pretty much saw the... Uh, rail travel and, and the rails as an intrusion into um, you know the quiet beautiful British landscape uh, I suppose. So this is a grumpy old man in Buckinghamshire fed up with HS2 <laughs> But it does show that there is uh, there the were maps and <laughs> map making <laughs> before the railways came and uh, yes, and demand for it I suppose <laughs> Well, we've got the life story of Stanford's as a business and, and indeed the remainder of uh, Mr. Stanford's life to come. We'll also be talking about uh, digitisation and uh, digital methods of finding your, your way around and war and uh, all of that coming up in the second part of today's show, which we interrupt for a message from our sponsor. Having an annual travel card is good. Your travel is sorted for the year with no queuing at ticket offices, no getting caught out with an expired ticket and a hefty discount on buying monthly tickets. Plus, there are other benefits. 
like cheaper UK rail travel and two-for-one deals on London stuff. However, not all of us have employers who can give us a season ticket loan, and few of us can afford to pay thousands of pounds up front to get one. Now there is another way. Commuter Club gives you access to the big discounts offered by annual travel cards, while keeping all the flexibility of buying monthly tickets. Join Commuter Club and you'll make 11 payments at the same cost as a monthly travel card, including their 5.6% interest rate, for a full year of travel. Best of all, with Commuter Club, there is no lock-up or cancellation fees. So, what will you do with the money you save? Find out more and sign up to start saving at www.commuterclub.co.uk forward slash Londonest. You're listening to Londonist Out Loud. I'm in Quentin Wolf. I'm with David Mantero, who's the senior buyer here at Stamford's. And, well, we've been uh, talking while the commercial was playing about historical mapping. And, David, not really your bag, the historical mapping. So y- your focus is very much on the more modern. And by, by more modern, we're talking the last 150 or so years. <laughs> I've got one mapping anecdote and only one mapping anecdote. I don't know whether this is apocryphal, but I've got a story about, the word, you know, the word dicey which can mean when something's unreliable or untrustworthy or something like this. And my understanding is that that comes from the maps made by a, a map maker called Dice. And this was back in the day, I'm not sure how many hundred years we're going back, but it was probably before we knew about all, the entire shape of America. So, you know, there was, there'd be monsters here and those kind of details on the map. But apparently his maps were notoriously unreliable. So if something was unreliable, it was dicey. So there we go. That's my map fact for the day. <laughs> um, Let's come to the more modern history of mapping. And we started the story of the company in 1853, and we were down in Charing Cross. Well, I suppose the question is, what happened next? Yes, well, basically, um, so that was the first Edward Stanford. Um, there were, in fact, two, um, father and son. And um, so the first Edward Stanford retired in the year 1885, I think. And then Edward Stanford Jr., I suppose, um, took over from him, and um, and those actually were the um, really the, the heyday of Stanford, and um, as it was indeed the best part of the uh, um, Victorian Britain, and, and you know there were prosperous times, and eventually um, Stanford had to move twice uh, because of the changing landscape of um, of what now is actually um, oh Admiralty Arch, yeah Admiralty Arch, but basically that's where the site of um, the original Stanford was. And uh, so they had to move, and then um, eventually they moved to um, a site very near there um, in what's Cockpool Street. Um, you can still see the building uh, that Stanford's commissioned. Um, it's above, um, I think it's Garfunkel's now or something like that. Uh, but the building still cons- the, has all the, um, the details that Stanford had commissioned for it. So there's um, Atlas holding the globe and. Um, it's actually quite beautiful. Um, what was a quick visit? So then, the Stanford prospered and and was based pretty much until 1901. All throughout that time, because of the relationship with Southern and Survey and the amount of stock that Stanford had to keep to be um, um, distributor for them, Edward Stanford had that second or junior um, purchased some buildings in what is where we are now, basically um, in Long Acre. But back in back then, it wasn't really um, a commercial street in any possible way. Uh, so he had basically the printing house and um, and some warehousing in this very site, pretty much. And eventually, when he had, he was forced to move again from um, Cockburn Street because I think the building was forcibly purchased by um, the London Authority at the time um, to have their offices, I believe. Stanford had no option and they moved here uh, which at the time was seen as a, as a difficult um, move in a way because as I said this wasn't really a, a commercial street and uh, it was pretty much a, I believe it's where people used to uh, make carts and sell carts and there were showrooms for, for you know handsomes and, and, and that kind of thing So that, oh, that must have risked destroying the business It was it was, um, it was a difficult decision I believe and, uh, and but it seems like by then, Stanford had this um, reputation and, and following and, and loyalty from its customers that decided to come here and, and turn into the place to be. And, and so not being in Cockburn Street wasn't that important anymore. 
I suppose if there's one customer base that you would uh, want if you're going to a slightly out-of-the-way location, it would be travellers. Yes, and explorers, and people that can find their way. (laughs) So, I mean, maybe I'm uh, jumping to conclusions here then, but to what extent was having Stanford's in this street responsible for the street being what it is now? Is Is it too much of a leap to suggest that some of this other stuff grew up around it? It's... Possibly, um, it is difficult. <laughs> I wouldn't uh, because it obviously, obviously, because also lots of things change and and it change again and change again. I think the war probably has a lot to do with that too. I think in a way, Stanford actually was lucky to be here. The way things pan out in the end, in the last twenty years, before the last twenty years, it was it was this area was still actually not that commercially wasn't that popular. I, I wouldn't say, um, you know, when when the or oh, maybe I should say 30 years, <laughs> when the market was still the market and, uh, you know, it, it wasn't really the shopping destination that, that you have now. You mentioned the war. Which war are we referring to? Well, both wars, I suppose. <laughs> Basically, the f- first war... Um, in a way, the, something strange happened with the Stanford and uh, in that both wars were really, really terrible for the Stanford's at two levels one of them was business which was I'm sure for everybody um, because because of all the restrictions and all the um, and, and the men that couldn't be here and you know the disruption to travel in particular that was bad for Stanford but also um, as it happens on, during the First World War is when Edward Stanford Jr. died just on the last year of the war before the um, before the actual end of it and as it happens his son that took over died the year before the end of the Second World War. And um, both, both of those things really marked the history of the company in a way. Firstly, because I think the second as well as Stanford probably was the last family member that was properly really interested in mapping and, and cartography. And um, it would seem that his sons were much more military men. And, uh, and in fact, they all fought in the, in the, in the Great War. And uh, they all survived, luckily enough, even though being in the, you know, the front and, and everything. But then once the, um, Edward Stanford Jr. died, his son took over, but it really became obvious that it wasn't his main interest to, to, to be a, a businessman, I suppose, really. Although he did a good job, and he managed to keep the Stanford going until the Second World War came about. Um, this is um, C.K. Stanford, I think. Um, uh, that was his name. Or I think it was Colonel Stanford. <laughs> Sorry, C- Colonel Stanford? Colonel Stanford, I think. That's what they called him. <laughs> really? <laughs> in the shop. Um, and the thing is, that he was... Um, I said that he wasn't interested in cartography, but uh, that's not true in a way. I mean, he was interested in cartography, but much more in a, from a military point of view. Um, so he assisted the government in mapping the really secret maps he was making from a, from a cell in jail. Um, he was going there in the evenings and closing himself in there and just mapping for the D-Day landings, basically. Uh, were, were there restrictions? Because I know um, that one of the things that the country did to try and foil any potential invasion was remove all the street signs. And I'm wondering how having a shop full of maps of the country uh, fared in that. Yep, not uh, full restriction on selling uh, maps of the country, yes. No, I mean, as I said, for the business, it was a terrible, terrible year during the war. Not just because of the disruption to travel and to, and to general trade, but because, in fact, it was forbidden to sell ordinary survey maps and to make them available to other people. This company's had a hard time at various points in its history. Well, I suppose um, it's a long history, so <laughs> and if you if you live through two wars, uh, you're bound to have some hard time. <laughs> yeah, right. This was the colonel who died uh, just before the end of the Second War. Yes, uh, and then his younger brother took over. Oh, hang on, hang on, though. Does that mean that he did or didn't get to witness the D-Day landings? He didn't. I'm afraid no. Um, he didn't get to see to witness the, I suppose, what people did with his maps <laughs> or, or the use that we were put to. Um, it's a sad thing. And then his his brother took over and, um, and his brother who had fought also in the Second World War actually in the front um, by the time that he came back from the war he really was not um, not just keen on, on being a businessman, he was actually not really keen on living in the uh, you know, living in the city and that kind of thing. He really wanted to move out and not have the responsibilities. And so, um, 
that's a very important time in the company. I think it was 1950, 51, when Stanford was basically sold to um, one of the uh, map-making companies that I mentioned before, um, Philips. Um, and that's a completely, that inaugurates a completely different time for the history of Stanford and, and what Stanford becomes. Because until that point, really, or perhaps until before the Second World War, Stanford was still a map-maker, in essence, not just a map-retailer or a travel shop or whatever we are not. But from... The Second World War onwards, um, really, the publishing program sort of stopped. Firstly, because there was no demand for it, but then, because as I said, the um, the, the sons of Edward Stanford weren't necessarily interested in the, in in that in that world, and and perhaps didn't have the vision to drive the company through those times. And how long did Phillips continue to to own the firm? Yeah, well, then, um, so Phillips owned the firm. Until 1980, I believe. That's got to be a good time, sort of 60s, 60s in particular. There was a lot of growth in holidays, wasn't there? Yes, um, yes, but perhaps not quite as strong as it then became with, um, you know, after the 70s and during the 80s. And in fact, I think possibly the, um, the highest point was um, as recent as 2005, four, when, you know, a really, really cheap, affordable airline first um, became widespread and, and particularly in European travel and short, you know, short breaks and the whole concept of um, all of that and I think that's when suddenly I'm jumping here I'm going too far ahead <laughs> maybe I should talk some about, um, about those years uh, the, the I, 60s, I don't know eh? um, not that I know that much about it but uh, <laughs> yes it's, uh, uh, but I suppose um, during that time it was, it was more European travel and, and in fact, the reason why Phillips was in a position to um, to buy Stanford and the reason why Stanford sort of lost a bit influence or its its um, position in the mapping world is because they failed to realize that um, UK travel had become something really important. And people like Phillips and Bartholomew actually started creating county maps and, and city plans for the whole of the UK. And uh, Because in the post-war... Yes, um, I think UK travel was a thing. People weren't going to Europe quite so much. But then, um, as a result of this, you know, once uh, for a few years, Stanford perhaps was a bit lost after not being um, stopped being a map maker. But then it found its identity in being a supplier of maps, and um, and basically, without realizing, it became a, a, a hub of cartograph- cartographic knowledge, I suppose. Um, where basically, uh, lots of people knew a lot about maps and and where to source them, and uh, and uh, I think nobody realized until it had happened that this was a place suddenly to, to come and find maps of anywhere that were very difficult to find anywhere else and uh, so the Stanford became a specialist in sourcing those kind of maps and uh, in getting travel books also and, um, and narrative and, and it became kind of like a hub for travelers rather than a map maker which it had been before <clears throat> I suppose we can't really keep going down this road without hitting the question of the future. I know we've got some of the, the much more up-to-date history to talk about, but the elephant in the room is uh, Google and those uh, maps that can appear on your phone. And I'm working in literary fiction. I'm very happy to support an industry that on paper doesn't uh, look like it should work or has got fierce competition from other things. But what's been the effect on uh, business from those uh, sort of things, Google Maps and so forth? Well, it's... Um, it's difficult to tell in a way I mean it, it obviously I cannot say that it doesn't affect and um, it has a huge effect and in fact we've seen decline in, in sales of um, street plans um, that's completely undeniable um, I myself everybody I think you can't deny the um, how handy it is to have um, um, you know your maps in your phone and you just check them whenever you want with your location on it and it's 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 great it's extremely useful um the thing is, um, Google Maps and um, Google Earth and programs like that, I think, have had a double effect. So some people might not be buying maps so much because they can check things online, perhaps. But at the same time, I think it's fomented uh, some 
interest that perhaps wasn't there before. Um, people that might have never been exposed to maps now are exposed to maps, and they might become a new generation of people that actually want to then see what the, the thing is, you know, the actual piece of paper, or, 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 or even, you know, come here and get something printed for them in the site centre, or see what else is available, what used to be available, you know, old maps of the places that they can look at now. Um, so potential, the, the potential is that actually what we could think as an enemy, it, it, to an extent it can be actually, um, yes, more supportive than you would think. Yeah, that's... Uh, yes, because I suppose, and, and it's it's going to be enabling your uh, business to sell online and, and things like that. The, the, the other thing, and I, I say this, maybe I like physical objects, I like paper, but part of that is because if your battery goes or if you drop your tablet down a toilet or whatever, then suddenly whatever is, is on there is gone. Or if you've got no signal for whatever reason, paper thing can be quite handy, especially, I guess, if you're travelling in a remote region yes no and, and not only that also um but the midlands or something. <laughs> yes yes <laughs> also the break on beacons so. <laughs> uh, no the thing is uh, um, one thing the maps give you that, that sometimes um you know other devices don't is um is an overview of the context where you are um so when you look at a device you can see where you are and the very you know the, the points are very close to you in a map you, you can look at that because it's there uh, but you can also see all the you know where you are within the context of everything um, so you know you're driving from here to there but what's to your left or your right or what other places are close to you or you know have you passed next to the coast and you might not have even realized or you know I've met people that have been to um, Mallorca and, and didn't realize they were in an island. <laughs> what? <laughs> for real? Yes, for real. I mean, they weren't the, the most intelligent people in the world, but it's, I mean, it, that, it happened to them. And, um, you know, they, they were driving with, uh, with, in a car with, uh, you know, one of these GPS unit things. And, uh, of course, the GPS unit doesn't, doesn't tell you that you're in an island. You, know, you just see the road ahead and, and, and there's always land. So. <laughs> Technology at work. So um, I must say also that, um, you know, we, we are not staying put. And uh, we are actually investing in the future and, uh, and we have embraced the, uh, the present, I should say. Um, and we have a, a business-to-business division, which... Um, uh, what they've done is they're using digital mapping to create a service where um, if you have a company or a um, housing association or things like that, they can put data onto the maps and uh, use it to manage the businesses. And the, um, It's actually very clever and I hardly understand it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm struggling. To, what, what, sort of th- what sort of data might we be talking about? Uh, so basically, if, um, for a housing association, for example, um, so they buy a piece of data where all of the different buildings might be and then they can overlay with data on the costs on the repairs are needed on the pretty much anything um, oh so this could be like those uh, booths poverty maps yes but in a very very modern way <laughs> where you have layers and layers um, within the same one map uh, that you can manipulate and, and change constantly yeah what else are you seeing in terms of innovation what are you seeing as, as buyer that's coming through that's exciting you? Or is mapping a, a very, very constant uh, area? No, no, no. I mean, it's... Um, I think what I've seen recently, funny enough, is um, a revival of um, old maps. And um, I think there's a nostalgic element in recent years. Um, the, uh, the availability of, um, of antique mapping and uh, reproductions of, um, of old maps, like the Boost Poverty map that you just mentioned. Um, when I first started here in Stanford, um, very few people knew of the Booth Poverty Map, and and we would sell a couple of copies a day. Uh, but um, recently, it was in television, and uh, and it's it's got really really popular. But at the same time, um, there's hundreds of of new maps that are sort of coming out of um, archives and, uh, and and coming back to life. And and I think that is one of the biggest trends at the moment, actually. And, uh, and and also how maps are being used a lot for um, decoration and uh, and as sort of like a lifestyle choice. It's a, it's a strange thing, but um, <laughs> as, as I said, there's, there's, as we were talking about before, there's lots of people passionate about maps, and uh, and I think maps are more than just something they use. It's uh, it's something that they have in their lives. <laughs>
So that was big. We're coming towards the top of the programme. I wondered if I could ask you to take me to one or two of the uh, items you're, uh, that, that excite you most or that you're proudest of selling here at Stafford? Uh, one of the things that we have been concentrating a little bit of late, uh, because we're trying to recover the heritage of the company, which um, maybe in the last few years has been not so much lost, but perhaps a little out of focus, <laughs> or it hasn't been the focus of the company perhaps of the last few years. And um, but we've decided now to to perhaps bring it back to life and, and make sure that people are aware of who we have been and, and, and what the history of the company was. And so one of the things that we've done is uh, in conjunction with the uh, Royal Geographical Society, who have a magnificent library that I recommend to anybody to go and visit in um, Kensington Gore. I think they might add, let you go and visit and, uh, and show you around. Uh, they don't only have maps and books, they also have... Um, Curiosities like um, Livingstone's chair and uh, Ptolemy Atlas is absolutely fantastic, absolutely incredible. Anyway, uh, they they happen to have um, lots of maps that were made by Stanford's um, back in the um, 1860s, 1870s. Um, it's a huge archive. Um, sadly, we didn't keep an archive here in the shop, so... Um, We've been there, we've discovered these maps we've, um, and we're starting to print them here ourselves and um, I think it's, uh, I, I find them fascinating I think it's a, it's a great thing to have and, and to be able to bring back and, and show people um, all these maps that were made back in time and they were basically the most um, you know, some of the most impressive things at the time we're looking at a couple of uh, map display units right now can we go back to the this one here the eastern hemisphere in one circle and then a companion uh, page poster the western hemisphere and uh, let's see what the differences are there's uh, a big country called arabia on this one well you do have this is 1888 and you do have um these mountains here for example quite fun um that's the kong mountains which don't exist and in fact what <laughs> they, they don't exist at all and uh, at the time they, they were pretty much a myth um uh, but nobody had explored that part properly at the time and um and they had been mentioned by somebody in the book and uh, and there they are and they they appear in most of the maps of the time <laughs> uh yeah maps are full of this uh this quirks and wonderful things um, I'm pretty sure there's some islands somewhere that don't exist never existed and um, they, they stayed in maps until as late as the 70s I think um, absolutely fascinating <laughs> apart from this um, is, there, is there a convention on uh, is, is there any convention on which country goes in the middle of the map um, not really I suppose uh, maps are always cut in one of the two big oceans um I suppose just so you can um, keep the land all together um, you don't have to break continents or things like that so generally they are either Pacific centre or Atlantic centre so it's going to be American centric or Europe centric pretty much <laughs> or actually I wouldn't I think China would make it more in the middle if um, in, a, in a Pacific centre one perhaps <laughs> so, so Australia in fact Australia makes it really to the middle in a, in a Pacific centre. Um, yeah, I mean, map projections are, are a fascinating subject in themselves. Um, I'm sure you know the um, Peters projection map. Um, it's basically all these maps, flat maps in particular, um, are always um, an interpretation of something that originally was round and it always going to distort what you have in one way or another. Uh, the traditional way is to distort it um, in size. Um, in order to keep the shape of the continents uh, the same as you see um, on the globe. Um, but then Peters uh, was a um, cartographer that wanted to show how, um, how maps had been showing a, a view of the world that perhaps could be associated with, um, with a Eurocentric or, or you know, uh, the Western world being sort of the centre of the world, so to speak. America, um, the US, um, the UK, you know. Europe in general and what he did is he did a completely different version of, um, of a map where what he did is uh, be true to the um, to the relative size of the countries while distorting the shapes and then you can see how Brazil for example is, is much bigger than you would normally see it in, a, in another map 
And um, I should explain what we're looking at is a map of the world, and essentially anything in the northern hemisphere is squashed flatter. Uh, Canada is about the same height in totality as uh, the United States. Mexico is much longer than uh, both of them, and, and Brazil are t- twice the size of uh, either of them. Uh, Russia's a big flat pancake at the top. Australia's a, a dangly thing. Uh, yes, so basically. I mean, it's just try to show how you know Africa and South America, in fact, in landmass are, are much bigger than we normally keep in mind, and um, and and you can see how this could have political and, and you know socioeconomic uh, significance. <laughs> yes, I can, I can. The national psychology has got to be altered by this, isn't it? <laughs> yes, completely. Um, well, there's um, there's lots to to look at here, and an entire shops worth of maps and guide. We haven't even touched guidebooks. But there's a whole other episode. We have to drift away and uh, go on our travels. For those curious to find out more, we should probably name the address and give the website and all that jazz. Yes, of course. Um, well, the website is www.stanfords with an N and an F. Stanfords.co.uk, and uh, you can find us in um, in London. We are at um, 12 to 14 Longacre, which is basically bang in the middle between. Um, Leicester Square Station and Covent Garden Station and um, you can find us in Bristol in 29 Corn Street Word of advice if you're coming via Covent Garden Tube I rather foolhardily decided not to wait for the elevators and did the 193 steps before doing this interview it's only by uh, a close shave that we managed to do the interview at all Um, (laughs) I don't know that I'm going to be able to ascend any stairs today Yeah, I recommend uh, Leicester Square generally (laughs) (laughs) David Montero, thanks very much Oh, thank you, thank you for coming and that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to David Mantera. Thanks to, to Becca Evans, Bernie Barkley and Mark Barr. Theme and incidental music was by Songs from the Howling Sea. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.